Podcast. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and testimony and it's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest edition, you can get one. Just head to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. But today on The Profile, I'm delighted to say I'm speaking to David Stroud. David is the founder and pastor of Christ Church London, a church that works for the cultural, social and spiritual renewal of the city. David is the former leader of the New Frontiers UK team, and he's been leading churches for over 25 years, as well as training others to plant churches in many parts of the world. He's the founder of the Everything Conference, an annual event that equips Christians to work for the cultural renewal of their communities. And David also has a degree in theology from Durham University. He's married to his wife, Philippa, also known as Baroness Stroud, who is the CEO of the Legatum Institute, a London-based think tank and charity which aims to create pathways from poverty to prosperity. The couple have three children and live right here in their favourite city in the world, London. Well, David, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. I have to confess that London is my favourite city in the world as well. Uh, What is it about London that you love so much? There is so much about London. I love the people and just the density and intensity of the people. I remember as a teenager being happy sitting on a street corner just watching people going by and I found them endlessly fascinating. (laughs) Like to watch what's going on. Exactly. So um, here on the show, we always like to go back to the beginning and ask about life growing up. So where did you grow up? You say you like to people watch. That was in London, was it? I was within commuting distance of London, but ah. I was brought up in Bedford. Okay. So a, a commuter town about 50 miles north of, uh, yeah. north of London. And was that a Christian family? It was a Christian family. Uh, I had two praying grandmothers. So actually, to, to leap ahead just for a minute, when I introduced my wife to be to my grandmother and said, Granny, this is Philippa, we're getting... Uh, engaged today she said oh she said you're the woman I've been praying for for the last 23 years so uh, she obviously thought anyone who got married to me needed an awful lot of prayer first (laughs) brilliant so uh, strong Christian family and and upbringing do you remember was there a particular point for you where you made a decision to follow God or has it kind of always been there do you know I can remember a particular point and that's partly because uh, I was given a leaflet on that day and I wrote on the back of it David Stroud, age six and three quarters. So it was a a special children's service with an opportunity to make a decision to follow Christ at the end of it. And I remember very clearly uh, that that was uh, a point, the point, the Mm. most significant point in my childhood when I made a decision to... uh, to live with God, live for God. It's really interesting, actually, to look at some of the statistics around this. And, And it would appear that for a lot of people... You really, if you're going to convert, if you're going to become a Christian, it's going to happen actually in your early years. Yeah. For you now as a church leader, does this play a part you're thinking when it comes to kind of the importance of kids' work and youth work? Well, I, I certainly think big shout out for every uh, you know worker with teenagers, every student worker, because those are the absolutely essential years. Because we've been based right in the centre of town, uh, you can imagine that lots of students want to come and be part of us, and we've always sought to make it a home for people. So as they're thinking about all sorts of parts of life. 
you know, we make sure that yeah. they start to think about the big questions sure. at the same time. So six years old when you make a commitment. I'm guessing the call to ministry probably didn't happen at that moment. Did that come a little bit later? It came a lot later, actually. I mean, my teenage years in terms of my faith were pretty unexciting. I would say I quietly backslid, um, but uh, not so much that most people around me knew. At 17, I had a very powerful experience of the Holy Spirit. And that changed everything for me. It was sort of like becoming a Christian all over again. Really? And at that point, I suddenly found my relationship with God so exciting. It was like, well, what else would you want to do but spend all your time focused on this and helping others to experience what had been uh, so amazing and so valuable for me? Mm. So what was the next step in, in figuring that out? If you encounter the Holy Spirit as a, as a teenager... What comes next in terms of your, your life and giving it all to God? Well, I guess after that initial point, and I remember feeling like my life was a series of rooms and handing them over and finding uh, cobwebs in certain corners that needed sorting out. And so there was a process mm. of surrender. Uh, it was shortly after that that the guy who was leading the church I was part of at the time invited me to spend a month with him during my year between school and university and I would pray with him every morning and I would go to meetings helping prepare sermons that that was a very very significant month for me and really crystallized I think my desire to spend my work as if you like mm. uh, working for the church you went off to university to study theology I did at Durham correct so that was was that with kind of ministry in mind, that that's the logical thing to study? No, it wasn't really. I just happened to do work better at that at A-level than any of the others. I almost did history, almost did politics. I found myself training again alongside Anglican ordinands. Mm. And uh, so there were many benefits of, of doing that course. Uh, James Dunn was the professor at Durham who developed a lot of the work on the Holy Spirit, which the sort of scholarly work, which went alongside the popular level sort of charismatic movement that developed. And I remember listening to him lecture in Greek. I know that sounds terrible, doesn't it? But he was taking us through Mark's Gospel in Greek, but it was absolutely amazing, the insights that he came out with. So I remember being very grateful that I was there and studying that, though it wasn't particularly vocationally at that point in time. Right. How did your faith develop or change whilst at university? You know, it's, it's a time when you're, you're figuring out so much, aren't you, at that kind of age. Were there elements of your faith that got refined or, or shaped or changed in that time? Massively. I guess university did for me what everybody says university should do. It taught me how to think. And therefore, I worked out that though my faith was a heart thing and was a relationship, that the critical faculties needed to come into play as well. And I also remember thinking that whilst faith seemed such a big thing in church, it didn't somehow enter into everybody's disciplines in the same way. I remember thinking people come here and learn about history or economics or... Uh, advertising but the faith deal does seems to be entirely separate from that so I think I even then began to think our world's not integrated we've not sewn it all up and seen God in every part we mm. break down the discipline so I became very aware of that as well yeah. it's uh, it's sad but often true that a number of Christians when they go and they study theology perhaps not in a kind of bible college format but in a, a secular or in a mainstream institution a number of Christians do grapple with the intellectual side of things and it can actually harm their faith where they think actually there's all these kind of things I've never had to think through in church before yeah. on an academic level that seems to actually be fighting against some of my theology. How did you deal with that? Well, I, th I felt like I was juggling and I would have some questions in the air 
but I always had my hands full of other things that I felt settled on. My observation was that some personalities can cope with that I don't know for a while without it undermining the basis of their faith. And some personalities really struggled with that. Mm. And I had friends who dipped out after a year because they felt it was just too undermining. But I think I was fortunate in terms of the way I was wired. And whilst it uh, was challenging at times, overall it was very beneficial Mm. for me, I think. So what came next? I had, by that point in time, uh, the church that I'd been part of in Bedford had been working on a social housing estate. And we had found that it was very easy, comparatively easy, to lead people in need to Christ. But it was very hard to make them disciples. Mm -hmm. It was really hard to help them sort out all the knot of problems in their lives. So I thought, where in the world can I go where people from very uh, unfortunate, underprivileged backgrounds were becoming pillars in the church. And I'd heard about Jackie Pullinger, an English lady who'd ended up working in the most notorious slum area of Hong Kong. So I headed there Hmm. uh, to add a little bit of practice to all the theory I got in the previous three years. Wow, amazing. I should say that Jackie Pullinger will be a guest on this show in a matter of weeks' time, so we can hear more from her then. Um, But from your perspective, I mean, she'll be very, very well known to many people, of course, Chasing the Dragon, absolutely huge book when that was released in the 1980s. What was it like seeing that work firsthand in Hong Kong? It was incredibly demanding. Uh, You literally had to... you. I woke up on my first day there and I was sharing a room with 30 ex-triad gangsters. I had one shelf and one drawer for my possessions. And I remember having a favourite pair of shorts and kneeling at the drawer, opening it, looking for them one day and then seeing them walk past me on somebody else who had uh, borrowed them. So it was very challenging, but it was very formative Mm. as well. And I think one of the most memorable things was the remarkable vision that this young woman had had. Without narrating all the story now, what a ridiculous thing. Uh, A young English woman ending up in this slum area of Hong Kong with its brothels and its uh, illegal gambling dens and its heroin uh, addicts as well. And she said the first time she went in, she saw it as a city of light. And she saw children sitting, children playing in the streets rather than locked away in their rooms, old men watching life go by and young women walking with dignity rather than being prostitutes. The interesting thing, Sam, was that we went. I was back in Hong Kong just eight weeks or so ago with my family, and we approached the site where the walled city was, mm. which is now a garden. Yeah. And as we m- walked towards it, one of my daughters shouted out, look, she said, young children playing in the streets. And as we got closer we could see old men sitting on the park benches. And it was full of women, young women, holding themselves with dignity. It was a very moving moment for us that 30 years after having been there and my wife actually lived in the walled city with Jackie, you actually saw this vision that she'd had as a young woman come to pass in a really remarkable way. Amazing story. And as I say, you can hear that on this show in a few weeks' time, my interview with Jackie Pullinger. But coming back to your, your story, David, you mentioned just in passing there that your uh, your wife lived with Jackie Pullinger. So did you did you meet her while you are out there in Hong yes, Kong? Yes, we did. Mutual friends in the UK, but for some reason we had to go thousands of miles around the world to meet. <laughs> what a great love story. Tell me more about that first meeting. What happened? Oh, well, the first meeting, uh, neither of us liked each other, actually. <laughs> so uh, it, it took a while. In fact, I often say that I was in Hong Kong just long enough for her to fall in love with me before uh, I had to had to go on to other things. <laughs> so it took a while. 
Uh, but we got to know each other and became uh, the best of friends and remain the best of friends today. And I'm sure there's a joke somewhere in there about <laughs> short-term mission trips and discovering your other half. The funny thing is that one one of my friends, uh, as he waved me off, said, you'll come back with your wife. <laughs> and I remember thinking, stupid man, I'm going for Jesus. <laughs> and, uh, of course, he had the last laugh on that one. And God had other ideas. Yeah, brilliant. I mentioned at the beginning that you've been involved in church planting and church leadership uh, for, for a number of years. Tell me about the first church that you started and, and where a kind of idea like that even comes from in the first place of I'm going to start a church. Well, I'd... I went on from Hong Kong, actually, to Chicago, and I interned with a church planting expert. He was the senior guy in his movement, helping his movement plant churches all over America. And it's funny that when you get to know somebody, you often end up loving what they love. Mm. And he would often say to me, David, the fastest way to grow churches that draw new people to Christ is to start new churches. And... As I spent time with him, I think I picked that passion. I think naturally I love starting things. I love that sort of scary, is it going to work moment or feel. Uh, but Steve uh, really shaped me in that way. And to be honest, I returned from Hong Kong and the States with a passion for those in need and a desire to start churches wherever I could. Hmm. So I got back and found myself leading a team uh, seeking to start a church in a very needy area uh, and uh, we had a very exciting year where we saw people come to faith every week for a year. We saw people healed miraculously on the streets. The church, ironically, ultimately failed. It didn't work out. But it was a wonderful year and a great learning experience. Hmm. It's interesting, isn't it, that, you know, often our biggest learning experiences are through failure. You say it didn't work out. I mean, I'm sure there are many reasons why churches don't work out. But But looking back, kind of what went wrong? And that must have been quite painful at the time as you say you had the passion to start something then for it not to work out must have been quite difficult it was difficult it's uh, disappointing in in a way that i think affects the heart uh, and it was our inability to raise up leaders from those who were not naturally leaders and uh, if you look across parts of the uk now there are certain areas and social groups of the uk who have very rarely uh, been christian uh, and very rarely thrived as Christians, and we found ourselves uh, in one of those areas. And uh, I think in our, uh, you know, we didn't know too much. <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, but as you say, it taught us a lot. And mm. next time round, you know, it was a very different story. Yeah, I was going to ask you actually, what what do you know about church planting now that you wish you knew previously? Well, that's a really interesting question. I think the absolute focus on helping new people find Christ. I meet a lot of people starting churches and the reality is when you've got 30 or 40 people it can f keep you busy and fill your diary and I will often say to trainee or young church planters put your diary in half give half of it to the 40 you've got and spend the other half going and getting another 40 mm. because of course if you don't it, it starts to, it can very easily stagnate. People can very easily turn in on themselves. It only needs a couple of tragedies in a small group. And it really shapes the whole thing. And it's very hard to get lift off mm. as a result. Yeah. I'll take you back uh, for a moment to when you kind of caught this passion for church planting. Because I know there'll be some who'll be thinking, well, you know, we've got all these kind of big 
half-empty church buildings already. Why not just fill those up? And where does this kind of desire for starting entirely new congregations come from? Because some might say, well, that, that seems kind of complicated and expensive and you've got to start a whole new system and get a new building. Uh, why church plant in the first place? Can't we just fill up the ones that we've already got? Well, let's fill up the ones that we've already got and let's start new ones as well. I mean, certainly there aren't enough church buildings in the UK to house... Uh, half the population if they decided to attend church on a Sunday. I find it funny sometimes. I've sometimes started churches in new places. I've had church leaders come to me and say, why are you starting here? My answer is because 95% of the population of this area are not coming to church right now. And the easiest way to reach them is to start new churches. Not that I'm against established churches. The church I've been in, I've been leading for 14 years and anticipate I'll lead for a lot longer still. Uh, But there is a, a particular dynamic and Catalyst, which sort of alerts people. Mm. Just to give you an example, uh, the second church, third church that my wife and I started, on our first evening, uh, we had 17 people in the room, and we had a wonderful evening. But at 10 o'clock, after they'd all gone, we looked at each other, and we said, we must have at least one more for next week. Where on earth are we going to find one person in Birmingham, where we'd moved to, to come, who'll want to come next Wednesday? And so the adventure started. Next the next Wednesday, we had 18 people. And so it adds a focus and a drive, I think, mm. which we so often lack when we've got to look after our buildings and our people, all the other very important things yeah. that uh, church leaders have to do. Yeah. So Christ Church London is your third church? Well, if we count the one that didn't work out, oh, then okay. it's actually the fourth it's one. actually yeah. the fourth church. Let's talk about it, uh, Christ Church London, big city centre church. Uh, you started in 2004. What was the vision then in 2004? How did it all begin? Well, it all began actually when I was 18 and I was on a train coming out of Waterloo Station, looking out over the housing and the thousands of people it represented and felt like I had this overwhelming sense one day I should move to London and start churches. Of course, when you're 18, you don't know whether that feeling is going to last past Friday, let alone uh, last longer. But it became the directing feature in many ways of my life. And though I started churches in many other places and was part of a project to start 50 churches across the Midlands in a five-year period, I always prayed and trusted that one day I would come to this city. And during this time, uh, you're part of what was then called New Frontiers, presumably. Yes, that's right. Uh, and you, you ended up uh, leading, in fact, New Frontiers in the UK, the team of people with, with this uh, this kind of church planting network, yes. if you like. So, yes. t- so tell me more about your time in, in New Frontiers. Well, it was a huge privilege with some extremely fine uh, leaders and people. And uh, we were planting uh, almost a church a month across, across the nation, around 220 churches in the nation at the time, and very focused Uh, on seeking to draw lessons from the book of Acts, which of course is, uh, for anyone who wants to think about starting churches, that's the part of scripture to go and saturate yourself in. And uh, as we we did that, we would find... uh, churches starting in all sorts of ways and all sorts of times, but it was was very exciting indeed. Um, The church, Christ Church London, is no longer a part of New Frontiers, and New Frontiers has changed quite dramatically. So can you bring us up to date with that part of your story? Why no longer part of of New Frontiers? One of the great things about New Frontiers is its very clear, strong DNA. And it draws people of that DNA in, 
but it's difficult to be part of it if you're not. And I say that to all credit to it, really. And I think as we developed and we became more and more clear on our own identity, mm. we realised that we were much better remaining good friends rather than being part of the same network. So uh, some of the leaders there are still, I would count, as some of my closest friends. Mm. Uh, but we decided that, that the best way was to forge our own path and it freed us up to be ourselves and enabled us to relate easily to others as well. So what were the differences in DNA, as you put it? Well, um, there would be all sorts, really. But I think some of them, at least, were forged out of being a city centre church and, and, and finding that in terms of mission and looking to, to reach people. You're in a very particular uh, ecosystem, if you like. It's very and different, it, isn't it? It's very different. And certainly as national leader, it was hard to... Uh, to uh, reach over multiple different contexts at once. Mm, yeah, I guess with city centre churches, uh, I guess often one of the distinctions is I, I know New Frontiers would talk a lot about building local churches. And I guess with a city centre church, it's quite hard to know what local looks like with London, where you have almost the entire population really living on the outskirts and kind of commuting in to, to your, certainly your central service. So as you intimate there, we have five services or five services as of two weeks time. Some of those are local services. So we have a service in Stockwell. If I'm preaching on a Sunday when I'm preaching and I'll typically have preached four times, I start in Stockwell 10 o'clock in the morning and that is a local community church. And uh, then I'll come to Blackfriars and preach at the Mermaid Theatre. And that draws people from all over town. And then later in the day, I'm in Bethnal Green in the east. And again, that is very much local community. And I think a big city needs many different types. There are some people who work in the centre, they play in the centre. In fact, they do everything but sleep in the centre. They just can't afford that unless they choose a park bench. It sounds like you're describing me right now, David. I've got to be honest. (laughs) So, Sam, for many of those sorts of people, they want to worship in the centre as well. Just to give you one other example, I met met a guy the other day and he said to me, we'd been working together professionally on 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 a particular event, and he said to me, he said, I'd love to come to one of your services. Now, he lives over in the east of town. I live in the west of town. If I was in a local community church, that would have been very difficult to do. But he's been coming regularly and he's been loving it. I've been loving having him around. It works in the centre because we met through work, if you like, and it was just a very natural Mm. outflowing of that for us to go to church in a similar place to the place that we'd met. Yeah. Uh, One of the things I find really interesting about your church that I haven't seen in a lot of other places is... Uh, there is a kind of really interesting emphasis on working and networking with other leaders. I know you have a kind of council of of reference as well, and these will draw in people who um, are from all sorts of different church denominations and streams. I know you've worked with people like Mike Pilavacci from Soul Survivor. You're close to people in the Vineyard movement. Uh, I'd love to know a bit more about that kind of idea. Is this this a unity thing? Is this trying to take the best from from various parts of the church? Well, it it, it certainly reflects our own emphases and some of the those that you've mentioned and others would reflect, I think, some of the best of the best, some of the the leaders who God's really called and anointed at this time in those particular areas. It's a huge privilege of mine that I can count them as friends. And uh, when we left New Frontiers, we wanted to express our unity to the body of Christ and also demonstrate that we weren't uh, independent or seeking to just, you know, go off by ourselves. So this seemed an easy way to do that. They're all friends. Uh, They often come and preach. And uh, they've all said that I can email, I can pick up the phone. If ever I've got questions, they're great people to ask for help. Sure. I mean, Mike Pilavacci, for example, he was in the news recently, said some really interesting things about church and business. 
Uh, he suggested that um, the church needs to try and move away from some business practices that he thinks that have, have crept in some parts of the church. He was using the example of in businesses you hire and fire, whereas in a church family you raise up sons and daughters, which I thought was a very interesting comment because I think we have started to see more and more churches, especially larger churches and often kind of big city centre churches, they will read management style books and they'll try and adopt business practices inside the church. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that kind of idea of yeah. should church leaders be going to management consultants and trying to think about the church as a kind of in a business structure how how helpful is that and is Mike Pilavacci right to say there are some pitfalls as well yes I agree with Mike I think that uh, a lot of that stuff can be very helpful uh, and I have certainly uh, used a lot of that material and drawn on uh, people to help us think things through I think the mistake is when you start to translate the ethos the culture and the language away from biblical terms like Paul saying to the Thessalonians, I was like a father to you and I was like a mother to you, uh, to rather CEO and uh, hierarchies and authority and those sorts of things. Mm. So I think we can learn, but let's not ape. I think there are some transferable principles, but the church is a unique entity. It has a hugely special contribution to the world. Let's not lose that by pretending we're something else. In my mind, that speaks of insecurity rather than anything. Let's learn from everybody. But let's keep the ethos that I think God gives us through the pages of the New Testament. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. And that was the first part of my interview with the London-based church leader, David Stroud. Join us for much more from David coming up right after this. Premier Christianity magazine. In this month's issue, we speak with best-selling Christian author Francine Rivers, whose hugely popular novel Redeeming Love defined a generation. In this rare interview, she explains how her most loved characters came to life and reveals the reason she doesn't want people reading some of her books. Plus, does believing in God give you an edge in the boxing ring? The man who trained former heavyweight champion Tyson Fury seems to think so. And discover the true meaning of five important biblical words. All this and more in November's issue. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Good news. We've slashed the cost of subscribing to the UK's leading Christian magazine. Now you can read news from a Christian perspective and interviews with fascinating leaders for half the normal price. That's 12 issues of Premier Christianity magazine for less than £20. Plus, take out a subscription and we'll enter you into a prize draw to win £200 worth of new Christian books. There's never been a better time to subscribe. Go to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. A very good afternoon to you and welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. Today on the show, I'm speaking to David Stroud. He's a church leader here in London and also the founder of something called the Everything Conference that we're going to be talking about in the second part of today's show. Just before we head back to that interview with David, I want to let you know there's a special offer on at the moment to subscribe to Premier Christianity magazine. That's the magazine that I edit when I'm not recording interviews like this. And we have got a half price offer on. That means you can get a whole year's worth of content, both online and in print, 
from Premier Christianity for less than £20 for the whole of your first year. Not only that, you'll also get entered into a prize draw to win up to £200 worth of Christian books. Anyone who subscribes will be entered into that prize draw. If you want to take advantage of this offer, it's the UK's leading Christian magazine. Get it for a whole year for less than £20. PremierChristianity.com forward slash subscribe. But now back to my interview with David Stroud. When we uh, last met and did an interview some years ago now, you said something that really stayed with me and I've thought a lot about since. And we were talking about the kind of climate of London, you know, where we are here right now. You said, I don't want to overstate it, but there's a lot of Christians in London. And you talked about how you'd often be on the tube and you'd see people reading the Bible. And I think you referenced the huge, you know, all night prayer meeting that happens at the Excel Centre. And I'd love to, to hear from you. Are you still, do you still kind of have that... Not necessarily optimism, but do you still see that in that you see a lot of good, positive Christian influence in London particularly? Because, you know, I'm sure both of us could also point to lots of statistics that would suggest the rate of secularism is increasing and uh, the spiritual climate in London is very tough. So are you still still hopeful about the, the future, particularly of the spiritual climate of London? The statistical reality is that the church north of the river in London is growing and it's the only place in the UK where numbers are increasing. Now there'll be a number of different factors to that but there is a reality there and uh, we shouldn't forget that and we should rejoice in that. That said numbers uh, do not always translate into uh, shaping society. I remember years ago taking my son to a nation that we'd been told was in revival. He travelled ahead of me and my hosts were very concerned that he had passwords and was very careful at the airport because there was a big danger of kidnapping. And I remember thinking at the time, I thought this nation was in revival. <laughs> well, the churches were full, but it hadn't affected the broader society. And I think that, uh, if you like, that's a very important part of our mandate mm. and one we need to continually be thinking through, is how are we a positive contribution to the world which surrounds us? Uh, as well as uh, growing churches. Yeah, I mean, this brings us to the heart of very much what you're about as a church and also the Everything Conference that we'll come on to talk about. It's this phrase of you wanting to work towards the social and cultural transformation of uh, of the UK and specifically London. So tell me more specifically about that vision because it's quite an interesting phrase that you don't hear a lot elsewhere. Why should church be having this kind of cultural and social emphasis in, in wanting to transform society. Where does that come from? It, it, it started to be formed once as we moved to London. We became aware of the creative power of cities. And some experts now say that the big cities of the world have more influence than the governments in terms of the way they shape the culture of the world, that LA and New York and London and the industries that are represented there and the power and money that they have has huge cultural reach. We meet, I meet people all over the Far East who say I learnt English through or American through watching television. And of course that's not all that they learned. They're shaped in all sorts of other ways and all sorts of values as a result. As we started and developed the church here, not only did I appreciate the creative power of the city, but found that some of the people attending my church were in those industries. And they were working very long hours. It was very hard to say to them, you must be at small group on Wednesday evening at 8 or rather they inhabited their careers and if we were going to think about discipleship we had to ask what does discipleship mean for them and maybe it means think about how they can be followers of Christ and creatively productive in that industry and work for the flourishing of the world where they are 
So really, that was how it started to develop, was, was sitting where we're sitting now, mm. right in the heart of the capital, and thinking about how do you follow Christ mm. authentically and obediently in this sort of context. Sure. And I guess you've had some personal experience of this in the kind of political realm as well, with your, your wife, uh, Philippa, becoming Baroness, uh, Baroness Stroud uh, just a few years ago. So tell me more about the political implications of this, particularly on a you know, quite close personal level for, for you and your wife about having influence as a Christian being a good positive influence for the good of culture uh, in somewhere like Westminster well I've, <clears throat> I think just to say first I think it's uh, it's important that churches and therefore church leaders actually remain above or uh, don't get involved with party politics I, th- I think that there are examples all around the world of where that hasn't uh, done the church well but we encourage people uh, to be involved in all parties. Naturally, at one election, we had people standing for each of the three main parties who were part of the church, and we were praying and supporting each of them. Yeah. So it seems to be uh, an important thing to do. Uh, my wife was at a dinner recently with a, uh, a famous writer. They were talking about the state of this world, and he said, who are your leader inspirations? Who are your inspirational leaders? And she turned to him and she said, Joseph, Esther, Daniel, and Nehemiah. And those, of course, are all examples of people who followed God were in a great minority in government and in public affairs, but all had at least a moment where they were able to make a very significant contribution. And I guess wherever we are, whether we're in politics or whether we're raising a young family, Mm. there are moments where we can have great influence on those around Mm. us. And it's interesting that in the Bible, I'm not sure it's particularly bothered about our station in life how influential we are, but it's very concerned about obedience and opportunity to make a difference wherever we are Mm. and whenever we are. Mm. I I know both of you, to a certain extent, are are public figures, perhaps especially uh, Philippa in the role she has in heading up a think tank and uh, sitting in in Parliament in the the House of Lords. With with so many people knowing who she is or who you are will obviously come a lot of criticism, whether you're a church leader or a politician. How have the two of you dealt with criticism? We've sought, I think, first of all, to try and make criticism our best friend. In other words, we've sought to listen. Because often, even when criticism uh, comes from uh, less than a good motive, there's something in it which you can learn from. And so we always seek to do that. I guess in the public square, we're aware uh, the battle for ideas uh, rages. And with it, and of course, there's been so much talk of this in recent years, social media and the like, it's often rages with a deep lack of incivility and so you have to develop thick skin and you have to make sure that it doesn't develop uh, it doesn't affect your heart so it's part of the territory Mm. Uh, that's life Uh, you have to seek to develop uh, inner resilience and courage and uh, a loving generous heart now those words of course all roll off my tongue it's not easy it's not easy and of course it's demanding yeah Uh, but uh The other option, of course, is just to retreat from public life in all its different spheres. And uh, one has to imagine Mm. that the world will be a lot poorer if those that follow Christ do that. Do you think the church, though, has retreated from the public sphere in some ways? I think there are some elements of it, most certainly. Uh, And I think that there are, uh, in some industries and some areas, there are many people who are very hesitant about uh, speaking or don't quite know how to speak or what language to use. Uh, in order to build bridges and make, you know, constructive Mm. uh, contributions. I think many people would agree with you that Christians need to be involved in politics, not necessarily in party 
uh, well, sorry, churches shouldn't necessarily be involved in party politics, as you say, but we need to have some political involvement. And many people have said, well, actually, the gospel itself has political implications. But how does this work in reality? When we come to the, the biggest political um, issue of the day, Brexit, how do you deal with that? As a, as a Christian, as a church leader, do you, just, do you just not touch it? Do you make your feelings known to, your, to, to leaders close to you? Do you preach about it? How do, you, how do church leaders deal with something well, like that? I think that's a great question. Um, and I think that on many things, there's not a Christian perspective. I don't think there's a Christian perspective on economics. I don't think, I think there are different Christian perspectives on welfare. Mm. Uh, and I don't think there's a Christian perspective on Brexit. I have convictions about Brexit. Uh, I have dear friends who disagree with me, but love Jesus uh, just as much as I do. So I think that uh, at least what we've sought to do is to pray and pray publicly for government. We're told to do that, to pray that God will give them wisdom. We pray for our nation. We make it clear that whatever the outcome, we're seeking unity and that whatever the political arrangement, we can love and welcome people into this nation. And... Uh, we call for people to be civil in their conversation mm. and to learn to disagree well with each other yeah. uh, rather than uh, despising the individual, uh, even if they disagree with the ideas. What do you think of the approach with someone like Justin Welby recently where, you know, I know I hear what you're saying, there isn't a Christian vision for economics, but it would seem that in some areas Justin Welby would say, what well, what actually is there when it comes to zero hours contracts or he's particularly gone after Amazon and he's clearly felt the need to, to be public on some of these things. Is is that a is that an appropriate response for a well-known church leader to, to, to talk like that politically? I think there may be issues uh, at times which one feels so strongly about that one should feels that one has to address. I think that's different from identifying with the whole system of thought, whether it's left, right or in the middle, and essentially becoming a card-carrying member of that. And some of the heroes, the, our, our forefathers, you know, Martin Luther King and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others at moments have felt evil is so great that I must speak out. It's coming up very soon. The Everything Conference, uh, Saturday the 17th of November. Now, I must confess, I am personally a huge fan of this conference. I've been many, many years, probably every time uh, it's run. I could wax lyrical about Everything Conference, but it's probably not my job to do it and probably your job instead. So tell us about the Everything Conference that's coming up uh, and how it relates to what we've already talked about in terms of the church's vision for transformation in wider society. We wanted to provide a context where Christians from every church and all sorts of church backgrounds could be equipped to contribute in their space, in their world, uh, and to contribute to the flourishing of the world. It's interesting that 30 years ago, when Philip and I came back from Hong Kong, there was great debate over whether Christians should be involved in care for those in need in what was called Ministry with the Poor at the time. It was a hot topic. Was it a waste of attention? Was it a waste of resources? Now that is a given. And Matt Bird at the Cinnamon Network would tell us that the church and other faith communities save the taxpayer £3 billion a year through our food banks and our Christians Against Poverty and all the amazing things, street pastors, all the other amazing things that the church does. So we're very committed now, I think, broadly to spiritual renewal and social renewal. Mm. But it seems to me that cultural renewal is also very important. And you've uh, talked earlier in our conversation about this sense that the cultural air is changing. And it, it can be nebulous at times, hard to put your finger on, but a feeling that it's slipping away from the Christian moorings that have so much shaped our nation in the past. And Christians, I think, have often retreated and been nervous. Our encouragement is this. Hey, Christians, you've got a long heritage of creating rather than complaining.
let's not be known for what we don't like, but let's be known for making a positive difference mm. today as a result. So the conference will help people think through that issue, variety of speakers. Yeah, it's uh, fast fire, 17-minute and 9-minute talks. Michael Ramsden is our keynote speaker, spoken in the White House and NATO and uh, the European Parliament, travels the world talking about the relevance of faith for everyday life, spent a lot of time in boardrooms recently. We have a well-known London barber who cuts celebrities' hair and uh, football players' hair, but also gathers in his barber shop. Uh, those who uh, uh, are against each other, uh, London gangs, and he helps bring peace amongst them. We have a street artist who uses her faith to shape the art that she does as she paints walls around the world. We have a Pause for Thought uh, Radio 2 contributor who's going to talk about how he talks about faith and values to millions of people who are largely uh, sceptical about his faith. And all sorts of other things will draw people from all sorts of different industries and backgrounds. People are working in cities all around the world, but doing inspirational and exciting things. Some of them will be extraordinarily successful. Others of them will be more like you and I, I think, uh, living normal lives, doing normal things, but working out how to follow Christ in the whole of life. Mm. How, if you like, to be salt and light. Mm. And no one will be speaking for more than 17 minutes. How about that? We actually have a countdown clock to ensure uh, that that is the case. Uh, Maybe that's the most exciting thing about the conference, Sam. I don't know. (laughs) The countdown clock. I think I'm trying to remember if last year, if the if the countdown clock was available for public viewing, I think it might have been depending on where you sat and you could say, oh, they're going to make it in time. Uh, No, it's, it's great. Great fun. Fantastic conference. I will be there. I recommend you check it out. Do you know, Sam, we've actually literally just this last week launched the thingconference.org. And there's details and you can book into the conference, but there's lots more stuff there about culture renewal. So for those of our listeners who want to think more about this or for whom it just lights something in their hearts, that would be a great resource for them. Everythingconference.org. Just finally on the Everything Conference, I was uh, talking to some friends uh, about this idea of cultural renewal. And I've got to be honest, you know, I think when I think about myself personally or some of my friends, I have real faith that God can use us as individuals in our workplaces to bring about or in our families to bring out some kind of cultural transformation on a kind of small scale. If I'm honest, when I think about big picture, when I think about maybe politics, I think, well, yes, of course, there are Christians in Parliament. There are Christians doing great work. But on a big picture level, if we're talking about cultural transformation of this country, to me, that's a very big prayer. And unless we were to see some kind of revival, I think you could argue that's not actually going to happen on a large scale. What do you think? Well, I I think, uh, why don't we pray for both? Uh, Let's pray for many people to have their lives renewed spiritually. Many people come to faith. Uh, But let's also pray that as that happens... Uh, that the world we live in becomes a better place to live sure. at the same time. But with but with that in mind, does that not then mean that without large-scale spiritual transformation, we can't see large-scale cultural well, transformation? I certainly think we should be... I mean, I, I my guess is that you have often prayed for that sort of transformation in this country. That is certainly... Uh, for 35 years, I have prayed those sorts of prayers. So certainly let's let's aim for both at once. That said, it's sometimes been very small minorities who've brought social and cultural change in nations. And it doesn't necessarily need uh, massive grassroots support for that to be the case. Mm. Uh, that sometimes three or... Was it Dom Helder Kamara who said that history is changed by daring minorities? And I wouldn't want to lose that, that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego... Just the four of them, it seemed, had a huge influence on a whole empire and the way that it was governed, 
because of what the king saw and the way in which they lived. So often it's people in the right place as much as the numbers of people that make the difference. What's the most common misconception do you think that people have about your job? That's a really interesting question. I mean, people sometimes say, you know, church leader, six days invisible, one day visible. What on earth does he do the rest of the <laughs> what week? What do you do the rest of the week? You only work <laughs> one day a week, don't you? Well, so they say. So I mean, they say. I just have to say on the record right now, I say that very much uh, with, with a smile on my face. I mean, as much as you do occasionally hear that, nothing could be further of the truth, right? I mean, if anything, it's the opposite, isn't it, for church leaders? You're constantly on call. I, I think the massive challenge for church leaders is making sure that they do rest and that there is a division uh, between uh, life and labour, if you like. And I think that's very important. I think slightly more seriously, I think a, 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 an idea that a lot of people have is that church leaders somehow live on a different spiritual plane or they're a different type of person. And of course, we're broken and fallen like everybody else. And uh, I actually preached yesterday on self-discipline. We're doing a series on Proverbs. I started by saying, you need to know I'm preaching as much to myself as I'm preaching to anybody else uh, this morning. And... Uh, so I think that it's always a challenge for any sort of leadership to say, follow me. And that is at the heart of leadership. It's Jesus said that, Paul said that, but also to be able to say, but listen, I face the same struggles that you do. I've got my own particular challenges. And so let's do this together. Uh, I'm not way out in front, mm. but let's put our arms around each other and let's go yeah. do this together. Isn't there still so much of that culture, though, of almost kind of celebrity pastors, even within the church? We can put people on pedestals very quickly, can't we? Do, do you think this happens on a local level? I think it does happen. I think it's very detrimental. And I think certainly all the stats we see of the emerging generation, millennials and younger, is their massive distrust of institutions and of institutional leaders. And therefore, you have to uh, try and subvert that idea. That, uh, that, you know, you're the leader, you're different, and you get to tell them what to do and, you know, everyone else has to do it. I don't think, it, I don't think it's a currency that people are prepared to trade in. Uh, certainly in a, uh, you know, westernised uh, young church. Mm. And uh, I think you have to really uh, fight against it. Mm. Uh, your church, you mentioned, I think it was five different locations, I think it was. Right, yeah. Uh, it's clearly grown a huge amount since you planted it. What would be um, some of the, the lessons you've learned or some of the things you'd like to share for other leaders in terms of, of why you think you've seen particular growth or success in some areas? Well, I think, first of all, we wanted, we wanted to see people come to faith. I know that sounds silly, but it was... Surely a, everyone does. Well, of course they do. But... There's some follow-throughs to that, which can be difficult. It was one archb uh, former archbishop who said that the church exists for the benefit of those that are not yet part of us. And therefore, we've worked very hard with our language and with our posture and with the whole way that we do our services. So you won't talk about being covered in the blood of the lamb then? Well, <laughs> it's very unlikely. And if we did, we would really want to explain it. But I've been to places where I've just felt totally out you know totally out of my comfort zone i don't really understand what's going on and i just feel entirely different from everyone i think that's the opposite of what jesus did i think he pulled people close he said come and do this with us and as they did they found their lives starting to get changed as a result so we've sought to always have a very big open front door and we've sought to draw people in and then give them time to make the big decisions of life mm. most of us don't make big decisions in a overnight they take weeks or even months. So we want to create a community where people can walk with us for long enough to do that. So those would be important. Yeah. So is there less of an emphasis then on, on kind of making a decision right now in the middle of a meeting? 
Yes, there is. It, it, we see this much more as process. Now, the, you, there are points where people, you and I need to make decisions. We all need to make decisions. And that needs to be respected and that needs to be done. But also, um, so many people now are starting so far away from Christ. Maybe two or three generations ago, you could assume some understanding of the gospel. Uh, now that's not the case. Mm. And therefore, if you're asking for change after the second or third time of attending, after three weeks of exposure to Christian life, mm. whilst doing your job and raising your family and everything yeah. else, yeah. you've probably not worked it out enough to do that. Mm. I can think of a number of, uh, again, sort of big city centre churches here in London who I guess part of their emphasis on wanting to reach out and speak in language that people can understand, there seems to sometimes be a bit of a reluctance to even talk about some of the hot topic issues, whether it's uh, gay marriage or hell uh, or even predestination. Let's just not go there. Um, what's your What's your feeling on that? Because some are saying, hang on, are we... Are we neglecting to teach the whole counsel of God? Are we ashamed of some of our doctrines? But but then on the flip side, people are saying, well, you've got to reach the culture and it's not easy to talk about these things. And I think that you, you described the tension very well. I think there were times where, and it, times where it seemed that Jesus uh, didn't answer a question, he asked another question. And he refused to be drawn on things at times. But in other times, in settings with his disciples or so on, he was extremely direct indeed. And again, I think it's important that we're able to do both that we're able to draw people in, talk about the majors rather than the minors, and at other times be extremely clear about our own convictions and help shape other people's mm. lives accordingly. So as you look back over your ministry so far, what's been the best day and what's been the worst? Well, the best day, or two of the best days, was the day that we started Christchurch London. We'd had a six-month build-up and we'd booked a room in Covent Garden and 250 people turned up. Now, you need to understand, my parents were there, my grandmother was there, my neighbours were there, just about anyone I could possibly invite was there. But it was a wonderfully exciting day, and it was, the, it was part of a dream come true. Yeah. And so I think it was very special as a result. Uh, the other day was the day that we went, to, we went from two services on one site to four services on four sites in a day. Wow. Uh, we thought either you do this evolutionary and take years over it, or you just, just do it. Get all the pain over in one go. So uh, for better or for worse, and it was for better, that is what we did. And it was a very exhilarating, exciting day, seeing so many new people empowered, taking responsibility, getting involved, and so excited about the opportunities they had to reach their communities as a result. So those were some of the best days. Some of the worst days are probably the days where you either, where people, uh, where there's conflict and where there's criticism. And uh, sadly, that seems to be part of the Christian life as well. And even the Apostle Paul seemed, you know, fell out at times uh, with those that he was traveling. And it's never what you want. It's always painful. And you often reflect and think, were there better ways to do this? But uh, the reality is there's been uh, those parts to my story as well. And I think those would be the saddest mm. days. Do you think on, on the criticism thing, do you, do you think things are almost getting worse as modern technology increases? The reason I ask that is many people have visited all kinds of different websites or social media pages and just notice that the the kind of quality of comments in general online not just in the christian world but generally seems to descend incredibly quickly and it seems like social media it's kind of given everyone a voice which is a wonderful thing for democracy but the negative thing is of course it's given everyone a voice and sometimes you think should that person be able to voice an opinion on that subject they clearly know nothing about hmm. uh, these things are influencing the church as much as as wider culture um do you ever think about that? I often think about that. And I think that social media has proved to be this hugely powerful thing that we've unleashed. 
without being aware of some of the consequences of it. And of course, like so many things, it's neutral in essence, but it's also an amplifier of of our hearts. So you find the very best of things on social media and you find the very worst of things as well. And we've not actually thought about how we handle that. And so I think we're caught in this time of incredible opportunity, but also of incredible danger at this point in time. And it's one of the reasons why I think Christians need to be involved in every part of life. It's because we need to help grasp the opportunities, but also militate against some of the dangers Mm. and vulnerabilities of a time like this. Mm. As uh, Ian Golden, Oxford professor, has just written a book on these themes. And interestingly, he talks about the importance of character. Now, he doesn't talk about how you get character. And there's no suggestion that he really understands that. And there, there is a great example, I think, of where the Christian comes into play. If anyone understands how we develop character and the life that we can draw on in order to do that, it seems to be one opportunity that we have and you know, goes right into this sort of Twitter, Facebook, mm. Instagram, argy-bargy nastiness often as mm. well. You mentioned a book just then, and they say the best leaders are readers. So what have you been reading this year that you'd recommend? I'm reading Tom Wright's book, uh, Paula Biography, at this point in time. In fact, oh, superb. it's, it's uh, in, my, uh, in my bag right now. Absolutely <laughs> wonderful. And he really brings the ancient world alive, uh, but links it right through to the scriptures and brings the scriptures alive in new ways as a result. So uh, this week I will be recommending that to my preaching team. And... Uh, uh, getting them to all read it as well. I'll take them some time to get through. Is it six? Is six hundred pages? Is it? Five I or think 600? it's one of his uh, one of his lighter ones. Comes in at about four hundred and fifty, <laughs> I think. So, uh. absolutely. I have to say that is a superb book. I've enjoyed that myself. Uh, so, just uh, just finally, then, uh, tell me what does the future hold? What's the big picture vision now for Christchurch London over the next, say, ten years? Well, we'd love to think we can start lots and lots of services in lots of different parts of London. Uh, in partnership with churches that are already there. Uh, London, uh, like so many cities, has a small minority of people who attend. And we would love to buck that trend. And, of course, somewhere like London, there's so many opportunities, so many places that are under-churched in our city. So we'd love to think we could start many churches. We'd love to start more churches in global cities. Uh, There's a, a sister church out in Canada and another one in the Middle East uh, from people who have been part of us um, historically, and we're hoping for much more of that. And uh, we'd love to think that as the Everything Conference develops, that it would encourage people from all sorts of backgrounds, streams, denominations, to think about how they can contribute to the culture that we have and how Christians can be known as those that work for the flourishing of the world. It was uh, Emperor Nero, when he started a, a persecution of Christians, one of the early church father said to him, Nero, don't kill us. We're your best citizens. And I often wonder whether that could be said of us today. I'd love to think that we could have a small contribution to changing that and that we would become known in that sort of way. My thanks to David Stroud for coming on the programme this afternoon. If you want to check out the Everything Conference, and again, I highly recommend that you do so, please go to everythingconference.org. It's happening on Saturday the 17th of November here in London. The main speaker is Michael Ramsden. And as David was saying, very short talks. So no danger of falling asleep during any of the talks at the Everything Conference. It'll be a packed day. I'll be there and I hope to see you there too. 
So all that's left for me to do this afternoon is to say thank you for joining us on the show today. It's been great to have you with us. We'll be back at the same time next week to hear from another fascinating interviewee about their life, faith and testimony. So join us again and we'll see you next time.